Don Hewitt created 60 Minutes. Good evening. Over 36 years building a legacy of journalistic excellence, ratings dominance, and now allegedly sexual harassment. The New York Times reporting in the 90s, CBS settled with a female employee who claimed Hewitt sexually assaulted her several times and ruined her career. This according to a draft investigative report looking into CBS's culture. A report this morning says CBS's former chairman and CEO Leslie Moonves tried to destroy evidence and misled investigators looking into sexual misconduct allegations against him. The New York Times says that it reviewed a draft report prepared by lawyers hired by the network. Those findings could wipe out Moonves's $120 million in severance pay. New allegations, even more allegations about shocking behavior from former CBS boss Les Moonves and the climate, the culture at his former network. Claims of abuse and a cover-up now reported by the New York Times, which obtained a draft of a law firm's report that is due to be delivered to the CBS board very soon. to another Joe's Media Corner. This week we're talking about CBS and abuse at the highest levels of power. Those were some news clips detailing allegations against Don Hewitt, the former 60 Minutes producer who has been deceased, but his crimes still continue apparently as he was the cause of CBS paying off a former employee for years to the tune of millions of dollars. This comes on the heels of allegations against Les Moonves, the former chair of CBS. New information has come out after a draft report was revealed by the New York Times of an investigation that CBS is conducting with an independent outside law firm. This is just the latest in claims of sexual abuse, sexual harassment involving media companies. We're going to talk about that and many other things in the news related to media with NPR's David Fulkenflick. He, of course, is a major media reporter, longtime journalist covering media issues and the author of at least several books on the subject. He's going to join me in a minute to talk about that and other things, including... Why was Kevin Hart removed as the Oscars host for homophobic comments he made in the past? And there's more of the same going to come along as well. We're going to talk about all of that with David. But first, let me remind you that my book is out, of course, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News, and How We Can Save It. It's up at Amazon.com. You can see more on that. Also at Willow Street Press and events to be announced later. And of course, let's not forget our sponsors, Jiminy's. Jiminy's dog treats are delicious and nutritious. They use cricket protein, which is better than beef or chicken because it's sustainable and uses less water and land. Check out Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com. That's J-I-M-I-N-Y-S.com. And now let's go to David Folkenflick. David, are you there? I am. Here I am, man. All right. Good to talk to you, David Folkenflick, of course, from National Public Radio, media reporter, insightful commentary and uh, investigation of media issues. And I wanted to ask you about, you've been uh, covering the Les Moonves story, and more broke out in the last couple of days that really implicates CBS going back to Don Hewitt. First, we had Les Moonves being accused of improper behavior and sexual harassment and assault. Then it came out that current producer of 60 Minutes was accused of allegations, and now Don Hewitt the legendary CBS producer, 60 Minutes creator, was accused years ago, and the network had been paying a woman off for years. What was the specifics behind that? Well, the Times uh, is reporting about uh, the draft findings of uh, the outside law firm hired by the CBS uh, corporate board to figure out not just what's going on uh, in terms of Les Moonves, its former chairman and CEO, but also what was the culture there. Uh, and discovered that a uh, former employee had been paid, I think, some millions of dollars over the year and had been continued to be paid as a result of a secret settlement uh, that had been reached because of accusations she made against Don Hewitt, as you say, legendary 
executive producer 60 Minutes, uh, and the idea that he had effectively sexually assaulted her. You know, it's at once worth disaggregating in some ways the severity of some of the allegations. Uh, I don't think the accusations against Jeff Fager, the most recent past executive producer of 60 Minutes and a protege of Don Hewitt, are as severe and as serious in some ways as those against Don Hewitt and against Les Moonves in certain instances. But they're serious nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, and they contribute to a go- growing question of the nature of the corporate culture itself. And I, I think also there's the growing notion, I would say realization, but you don't always see it put this way. So maybe it's realized and maybe it's just sort of implicitly something that's winced at. But the lack of serious oversight of various actors with a lot of influence and money in celebrity-driven professions seems to have repercussions. For Les Moonves, he was a guy who had just found ways to uh, make hits, make stars, and make a ton of money. He really was, uh, I think I think if you go back somewhere in one of the uh, our old broadcasts, I called him one of the last great or one of the last true Hollywood moguls. And I think that's fair to say. But I think it's also fair to say if you give credence to the increasing number of women who have come forward to give fairly overlapping accounts of their interactions with mm-hmm. Moonves, that he used his position to prey upon women inside and outside of the corporation for which he worked, taking advantage of his position to do so. He denied having any sexual interactions that, that lack consent, but right. a number of women have said otherwise. And there's been multiple women, this, and this is the power structure of today's media. We saw it earlier with Roger Ailes, who was accused uh, by several women, uh, Megyn Kelly among them, of improper, various degrees, some were improper sexual harassment comments, some were outright physical displays. And then, of course, Harvey Weinstein, who was maybe the leader of, of the worst, and the first one, and again, he's a powerful man in Hollywood and other ways, three major power figures in media getting all accused. And of course, that doesn't include other people like Matt Lauer and many others, Bill Cosby. But in terms of CBS, this to see this, like you said, this kind of track record where it's happened several times and they're paying someone off for years, is this something we're going to see more of, more women coming forward? Or do you think a lot of it has sort of been done and everyone's had their say? Saying at CBS, or are you saying more generally that, that the last you know, year, um, 15 months has, has flushed everything out? I don't know that everything has been flushed out in the open. The allegations against Jeff Fager were much slower to become part of the public realm, in part because he was still on the job Mm -hmm. until much more recently. You know, one of the lessons that some women are drawing is that now at least women are believed or at at minimum taken seriously. They may well be believed, and they may well be believed with their word taken above that, of the person they're accusing, particularly in circumstances where they have corroborating documentation or others who can attest that they had shared details of their dismay encounters at the time. What's not happening, however, is that women are held harmless. That is, women still find, talking with the documentary uh, maker Alexis Bloom about this on, on my show On Point the other day, they still find they pay a price for coming forward nonetheless. Yeah, and we saw that with Brett Kavanaugh, and that was a different animal. That wasn't media. That was uh, Supreme Court, which is even more serious, but she definitely, her his accuser, uh, his, I guess his, his main accuser, he had several accusers, took a lot of heat, took a lot of just outright abuse, I think a lot of people would say, and one would have thought, and I know comparisons were made to the Anita Hill hearings and that a lot hadn't changed, but you're finding with these other women who 
are accusing the media moguls, the abuses and, and backlash hits them as well? Yeah, I think that that's right. And so I think that women who are making these accusations and are coming forward are often paying a real price for doing so, even mm-hmm. as their accounts are taken more seriously than they once were. You asked if there were more people to come out of the woodwork. Uh, the attorney, Gloria Allred, over the weekend, as you and I are speaking now, came forward to say there were a few women who had not yet been spoken to by the CBS inquiry, by the legal review, and that she was working to set that up even now. So there may well be more things to come forward. In circumstances where there are serious allegations, often others come forward as well. In the case of Kavanaugh, there were a couple uh, at the tail end there that came forward that appear not to have been substantiable and that appear not, even a couple that appear not to be credible, but that happens in incredibly public circumstances. And so, you know, there really, there has to be a profoundly careful uh, assessment given to these accusations, but a lot of them proved to be very much substantiable. Right. You know, one of the problems with Les Moonves is he was shown to have uh, tried to actively mislead uh, investigators to try to delete evidence and to try to uh, deflect attention from the accusations some of these women were making about him. But, you know, the interesting thing about the Roger Ailes circumstances at Fox was that because he had effectively founded Fox as we know it, it turns out he kind of backwards engineered the place to suit his interests and his behavior and his misconduct. And there was no one there to serve as a check on him as long as he provided uh, the wanted attention and ultimately profits for the Murdoch family that controlled the parent company. And it's funny, you mentioned you mentioned Allred. I know she was on uh, Brian Stelter's Reliable Sources with one of the accusers, and that was, it was very insightful. Yeah. So she was willing to come forward, the accuser, I mean, but I'm sure not easily. I'm sure she's taking heat in many ways, and just people who either support Moonves or don't like to see women accuse others, even if they're valid accusations. You mentioned Ailes organizing Fox to suit his taste. One of the things that came out of the latest Moonves story was that he actually had allegedly women or a woman on call, as it were, to come and uh, service him, to, for lack of a better word. One of the employees sort of pushed into that role, that it was not just him making advances and threatening people with their jobs, that there was actually an organized effort to have someone there to please him as he needed. That seems to be out of a out of a movie or something. Oh, it's appalling. And it, as you say, the law, legal review found that four women Women who are subordinates at CBS over the years had been engaged in what it termed as transactional sexual encounters with no hint or promise of any kind of personal or romantic element. And indeed, that there was one employee who was expected to cater to his uh, sexual appetite, and that this was known by others. You know, the real. You know, again, I want to turn back to the idea of uh, adult oversight here. He was incredibly influential and powerful because he made a lot of choices that made CBS very successful, even at counterintuitively. A board member joining, who was a a longtime Hollywood producer and entertainment lawyer, was told by a friend who was a physician that Moonves had sexually assaulted her effectively, trying to force her to to perform a sexual act upon him some years before at the end of what was supposed to be a medical examination. And he did nothing. He discouraged her from pursuing it, but basically did nothing to it and did about it and did not even inform his fellow board members as he took over the board. Similarly, the review finds that the longtime chief communications officer, Gil Schwartz, a, a fairly charming guy who used to write a column under the name Stanley Bing, who you probably know well. Oh, sure. From your years. You know, that he had known about some of this stuff a year ago and had drafted a resignation letter for Munez and that Moonves essentially sloughed it off. He clearly didn't choose that option a year ago, but that Schwartz didn't then bring this to other people's attention. You know, he thought, well, I, I don't want to put thoughts into Schwartz's head, but he clearly knew about something. 
he drafted something that would have been a serious response to it. And then when that option was not embraced, he took no further action that is known, or at least that is documented by the, by the legal review. So it suggests that you had a board member and you had a very senior C-level uh, official, chief communications officer, who knew of at least serious and substantive allegations, whether or not they were true, and didn't do anything else about it. And you mentioned earlier the Roger Ailes situation. I'll remind people of your book, Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires, which is a great insight into Murdoch and his his uh, empires. But also, you obviously then know much of the background on Ailes. Where do you think these allegations will take things? First of all, with with Moonves, what's the legal realm in the future for him? Where, where does that stand? Is there legal remedies, criminal charges that can be brought against him, or is that is it more going to be in the civil realm, or where, where do those things stand? One would think it would be more likely for there to be civil remedies than, than criminal charges filed, in part because some of these incidents involve things that happened years ago. The report suggested that there was a line drawn under his behavior after he married Julie Chen, the CBS uh, mm-hmm. news and then CBS host. If that's the case, I would almost certainly be outside the statute of limitations for most of these things on a criminal level. And there might be some civil statute of limitation things as well. That said, there might well be corporate exposure. You might see some settlement with women just on the basis of their failure to act to inhibit such behavior and the fact that does not appear, at least as represented by the review commissioned by the board itself, to have been unknown to everyone. It sounds as though there were coercive acts. There were things that sound like textbook quid pro quos. There are other ways in which this is problematic. So I don't know exactly how that will play out, but it's serious. And it tells you that Ailes was an extreme version of behavior, but does not have, see, appear to have been done in isolation by any stretch. And, you know, the amazing thing is all of this is happening, and Moonves is trying to ride this out at a time when he's also rather audaciously engaged in essentially lawsuits against the woman who is effectively the controlling owner of uh, enough shares to determine the fate of the CBS Corporation, Sherry Redstone, the daughter of his longtime backer, Sumner Redstone. Right. So what looked like a figure who had some sympathy from the press that covered him, Moonves, because he could be ingratiating, because he was successful, because he was kind of intuitive from just somebody who wanted financial control to combine CBS with Viacom, a more poorly performing set of media properties. She seems to be kind of a more reasonable actor in all hmm. this, despite all the color and all the craziness that attends her own family's drama and all the lawsuits there. But if you look at this, you know, the idea that Moonves was acting without any kind of check on a board that he had constructed helped lead to this. The fact that he was the check supposedly on his employees. Well, Don Hewitt at 60 Minutes and Jeff Fager at 60 Minutes effectively reported directly to him because 60 Minutes was so important to the CBS News brand. They outlasted a lot of CBS News chiefs. So again, you see these things where the question is, is there any outside check on authority and power with people given great influence in these places? You know, it's, it's not only about power, it's also about sexual misconduct, but I think power plays a huge role in all of this. And in media, you know, usually power is more about fame, wealth, and influence. But, you know, in terms of people's behavior toward their subordinates, it can feel like power. And this investigation that's being done for the board says the two law firms... These are, these are you know, some of the most established private law firms around, you know, among the people helping lead this, I believe, is Mary Jo White, the former U.S. attorney. Ah. You know, these are very tough-minded uh, people. Yeah. They're obviously coming out with... Attorneys and, and former prosecutors. And they're obviously not hiding anything because they're coming out with major accusations and, and evidence of wrongdoing by the higher-ups. So. That would look to be the case. I mean, it certainly helped. There's a way in which it certainly helps the ultimate controlling owner, Sherry Redstone, in attaining 
the iron control over CBS that she has long wanted. The interesting thing about the timing is they found that Jeff Fager had been accused as far back as 2009 and that uh, Hewitt's, I would assume, went back even further than that. So this is against stuff that the corporation sat on for such a long time. Does that seem to be a surprise or does that sort of go along with what we saw with Ailes and, well, Harvey Weinstein, his claims were really brought out by the New York Times. I think a couple things. First first off, if you have Les Moonves and if it is true, if you credit the multiple accusations against Moonves, Les Moonves doesn't have a lot in the way of incentive to give a lot of retribution to people who are doing activities which are only as bad as or maybe not even quite as severe as some of the things he's doing himself. Right. And he best knows that. So you don't see him taking a lot of action. You may There are a lot of people wondering, well, why the heck is Bill uh, O'Reilly getting away with sexually harassing somebody back in 2004, 2005? You know, paying a lot of millions through the nose and then continuing on. Well, it turns out Roger Ailes was doing as bad or worse. So he's not gonna he's not gonna be the one to to, to go after that, right? And it looks like Hewitt's settlement was reached, it says in the nineties, which would give it probably twenty years, more than twenty years. And they use the term sexual assault. And we know sexual assault and sexual harassment, while both terrible and offensive and criminal, assault is assault versus harassment. That that would seem to be even stronger. It's very and serious. If you have an employee who's assaulting people, you not only aren't going to keep them on, but you're going to file charges. That's a criminal activity. It's nuts from any objective standpoint. So it, where does all nuts. this leave CBS, not only in terms of its structure, but its image? And again, when you're talking about such horrible treatment of women and having it covered up, are they losing not only in the uh, in the economic realm, but in the image uh, with its viewers and just the day-to-day operation? Or is it probably going to come out of this okay, given the openness that they're showing? Well, I think a couple of things. First off, they're changing ownership or at least control. Shari Redstone has taken over, she can say we have a new ownership. That's a big change of identity for them. Even if the public doesn't always perceive that, it means that she has a different story to tell. I think that unlike NBC, which had its own corporate parents general counsel's office oversee its review, Mm -hmm. uh, having outside law firms do it gives it greater marks for openness. Uh, Disclosing deeply embarrassing things with specificity helped. You know, there was much more generic conversation about what Lauer did and didn't do. And I'm not hearing anything from inside CBS where people think they're covering things up in this. Right. It seems like something they can get through. So that's, I think, a thing. I think, I mean... I think CBS emerges from terrible black eye. You have its chairman and CEO is gone. One of its biggest stars on two of its biggest shows, uh, Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes and on The Morning Show. Multiple accusations of sexual harassment, although not, to my recollection, assault. And Jeff Fager for the question of, you know, essentially misconduct. You know, that's a problem. And just the legend of uh, Don Hewitt. You know, certainly gone for many years, but nonetheless, the fact that they've been paying this and this has been part of the backdrop, on, uh, you know, unbeknownst to us all, is a problematic. And it speaks to the nature of the place that Moon, how Moonves ran it. So I think it, it casts a very dark shadow on the culture that uh, Moonves uh, created, even as they seem ultimately, after forcing him out, to have dealt with it in a, a more direct way than some places have done. And the other thing, again, we're talking to David Fulkenflick, media reporter at National Public Radio, and author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires, among other things. I wanted to ask you also about latest news last week of Kevin Hart, the comedian who was going to host the Oscar show, which is TV, and resigned from that position after there was some uh, revelations of, of homophobic comments he had made in his act years ago on 
think almost 10 years ago. What does that mean in terms of similar situations we've seen with things like Roseanne was dumped from her show because of some offensive tweets, racist tweets. Um, we've seen that in other stars. Nowadays, anything you do, even if it's 10, 9, 10 years ago, can come back to haunt you. And is that good or is that going over the line or is that just where we are with trying to be sensitive to these different issues? And of course, the Oscars is a major production that maybe they just wanted to get out from under it and it's easier to drop and go on and try to defend it or, or make it a sideshow. It's one of these circumstances where I'm a little surprised by their surprise. It seems as though, as in many kinds of similar flap, once it's something becomes public, people say, oh my goodness, but this can't be the, the first time somebody thought, gosh, we should look over a comic's material to figure out if something becomes controversial, are we going to stand by him or her, or are we not? It can't be the first time people have thought, my heavens, there might be something on social media. You know, we're past that point. It is a standard part of what should be done to scrub people's records and what they've said. And comedians are almost expected by default to have said things that are offensive. You know, if all of them go in the same direction and seemed intent on getting a laugh at the expense of other folks, at the you know, in this case, the expense of gays, that that's the direction it always go in, and in fact, that, that certain kinds of uh, homophobic terms are used as put-downs online, that unless he engages with that, then it's a problem. And it's a problem for audiences, but it's also a problem in Hollywood. I've heard that from a number of folks, so that the question is, what's the temperature going to be, not just in the audience, but in the room for Kevin Hart, if he's allowed to continue, if he, particularly if he hasn't engaged with it, if he hasn't found a way to address it that's useful. But the idea that this should be a surprise at this point is what really surprises me. You know, people have to be able to deal with it. Either we're in a post-sensitivity world where nobody takes anything to heart anymore. I don't think that's where we're at, but if that's where we're at, that's fine. Or if people feel somebody's engaged with this earlier content and addressed it and reconciled a, a different version of himself with that, that may be successful as well. But otherwise, you got to take this stuff into account. One thing that's kind of interesting is that anything that someone says or does years ago can come back to haunt them. And is that, are we going to get beyond that anytime soon, especially when it comes to television? I think if people can make a case for that being purely performative, if they have ways in which they've, through their material, through their lives, uh, proven themselves not to embrace the seeming values expressed in offensive material, then there's a certain register for understanding that people who are comics or people who are write lyrics for songs or other things uh, are not going to uniformly come out with lines that are perfectly inoffensive at all times. But if everything trends in the same direction and if the words are consistently hurtful, then we are currently in an age where there are people will raise objections, and perhaps not wrongly. And you're right. The idea of with Hart, who has had a history of offensive comments, they shouldn't be surprised necessarily. We've seen this before at the White House Correspondents' Dinner and other dinners. I think it was Don Imus was at a radio and television correspondence dinner way back when Bill Clinton was on the dais with him, and he made direct jokes about his uh, Lewinsky affair and, and other issues. And even this last White House Correspondents' Dinner, the comedian Michelle Wolf was very controversial and even uh, mean-spirited, many people thought. And was her past material that, that way? I don't know. I didn't really know of her until that dinner. I, I must confess, I didn't find her material upon review uh, as offensive as people decided to find it. You saw political operatives with ties to the White House. I think one of them uh, made clear dismay, walks out, is observed walking out of the thing, and then attends after parties while all the journalists who were there uh, for the evening itself. I remember people being offended by Stephen Colbert during his Yes, and uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to be uh, at the Stephen Colbert 
one. Right. I thought it was one of the most brilliant uh, yes, he performances was great. I'd ever seen in those things. He was uh, telling a very uncomfortable truth to power. And he attacked both the press and the president. I think he did it very balanced, where he took shots at the press and the president, which is probably the best approach, because you want to be right, fair but, to but, all but sides. Let's, let's be clear here. You know, I'm a media critic, but let's be clear on the roles here. I don't know that a comedian has to be perfectly balanced. True, but I'm saying I don't know any that criticism a has people to be perfectly were perfectly fair. In the Colbert case, yeah. you know, Colbert was highlighting the dynamic of the Bush administration's wanting to dismiss inconvenient fact, which sounds quaint in the current era. True. But that there was desire to undermine the value of what reporting was and of what fact was with sort of a disinclination to embrace science and fact in the way that his father uh, had done as even as a Republican administration. I don't think it's Colbert's job as, you know, you're basically the court jester. You're trying to tweak authority, sometimes speak truth to authority through humor, certainly send up the self-importance of the press. I'm fine with that. But balance isn't the point. I, I didn't have that big a problem with Michelle Wolf. Others may disagree. That's not an official NPR stance. I'm just giving some leeway to make my own assessments on that. What I would say is that when you're attacking sort of groups of people, or you're seeming to through your comedy, through your words, in a way that's making fun of them simply by virtue of the fact for being that thing, whether it's an ethnicity, a race, a gender, a sexual orientation, a gender identity, whatever, a number of conservatives will say, oh, those are the shibboleths to the left. But basically, you know, it depends on whose ox is getting gored on that one. And I think that, you know, comedians at the moment are walking a fine line. You mock groups of people, it's offensive. You mock specific people, it's seen as cruel. What Hart did, it seemed to me he didn't engage with subsequently. He didn't engage with in a way that allowed people to say, well, there's some real offensive things there, even as a comedian. But he's playing a character... Uh, and he seems to have gotten away from that or some other way of dealing with it. I think that the White House Correspondents' Dinner has become complicated. I stopped going about 15 years ago. Yeah, complicated is a good uh, phrase. And I thought, in all these cases, though, the idea you mentioned of it's known that Hart has said offensive thing. So if you're going to hire him, you're going to hire all of him, and you should know that. Now, in Wolf's case, I don't know about her comedy prior to the dinner. I did think her performance was a little a little harsh, a little lowbrow for my taste. I could see why people were offended in just in that kind of room. But I don't know what her past performances were like. If they were similar, then again, people shouldn't be surprised. And in the case of Colbert, you saw him. I don't. He didn't have his own show at the time, I believe. I think he was only on The Daily Show. But the approach he took was very harsh. I think Colbert, if you go back and look at it, Colbert was playing the character of Stephen Colbert because he pretended to be on the side of the president. First of all, I thought it was very funny and I thought it was very smart. I was very surprised people were so uh, offended and a lot of the press were offended or hurt because he took shots to press, which were valid shots, which again, I don't think he needs to be balanced. But I think in his case, since he did take shots at both sides... I think it would have been hard to criticize. And the other interesting thing was I was at that dinner, as I mentioned, and it is kind of different. I'm sure you would would see as well. When you're in the room and you don't have the many outside forces of Twitter or, or even cable commentators, anyone sort of immediately responding like you are when you're in the dinner. Now, of course, today you can be in the dinner and be getting responses and seeing what the reaction is immediately. But if you're not, if you're just watching and listening, it's interesting you form your own opinion. Then later on, you hear what the backlash is versus if you're watching it at home and you see the immediate backlash. But I think you're right. In all those cases, it should not have been a surprise that these three 
gave the performances they did if they had similar performances in the past. And now it's interesting, you mentioned the dinner is going away from the comedian route to this historian, which will be, I think, an interesting change and probably a good one to keep some of the controversy away and make it more of an event to promote journalism and free press and raise money for scholarships, which is what it's supposed to be. That was certainly the claim. Sometimes it feels a little bit as though it's like the Miss America pageant, where they always say, well, it's a scholarship program. I'm sure there are scholarships involved that never seem to be the point when you talk to White House correspondents about the dinner, even if they were glad for that to be occurring. You know, Olivia Knox is a serious, wonderful guy, a thoughtful journalist. He's the head of the group this year. He, uh, along with his colleagues, made this decision this year. I'm sure there'll be a lot less attention. Will people carry it live? Will you have gossip bloggers and uh, other journalists uh, covering the journalism there to celebrate journalists? You know, I didn't shy away because of the controversy. I shied away because I was uncomfortable with the level of self-congratulation, self-celebration, the blurring of lines between celebrity journalists and subject being covered. I think there is a usefulness to certain kinds of emollients to allow journalists and government figures and political figures mixing in circumstances that are not technically circumscribed. There's some social interactions. There were times where it was this crazily incestuous event. Uh, for Washington, and there were times where uh, this dinner and others like it seemed to be ones that people gritted their teeth through as they tried to tamp down the animosity and hostility that seethed below the surface. You know, I had some problems with it. That said, from afar, did I watch the Colbert one? I sure did. I think the Seth Meyers-Obama one in 2011 was fascinating, not least for the way in which uh, Trump took sort of long-standing grudge from it yes. uh, by being made fun of both by Obama, who had just cleared the whole birther controversy by finally releasing against his, his instincts the long-form birth certificate from Hawaii, and also had made the order to take out bin Laden, which played out in the hours ensuing. That was another interesting thing, because it was just hours later that we learned that bin Laden had been killed. And it's, it was also interesting to see Trump at that one. He was in the audience taking a lot of hits from Obama, but even more from Seth Meyers. I think a lot of people look at that one, and he really showed no signs of having a sense of humor at all to any of it, which shouldn't surprise people the way he acts now toward the press. No, I mean, but if you think, I mean, Seth Meyers told me when I interviewed him about it that he went up to him later on to try to give him an out and say, hey, uh, you know, thanks for being such a good sport. And uh, Trump made clear that he was uh, an inferior comedian and really failed that night. And Meyers said to me, you know, what what he bit back was, of course, Trump had shown no sign of being a good sport whatsoever. He was just trying to be uh, to be polite about it and be to, to get it on better standing. Now, why is Trump in the room? Trump is in the room because of the erasure of lines between celebrity uh, journalism, media, and politics in that room and in, in Washington more generally on TV and elsewhere. I think that was emblematic of that, and I think it's what hastened Trump's ascent in the 2016 race was 100% name recognition. So, you know, it all kind of comes back to the same place. Myers was an ideal host in some ways because he knew how to thread the needle to be edgy and at the same time not be wantonly hurtful. But there's a way in which, look, Michelle Wolf was rough in some ways, but there's a way in which you have this whole thing where the Gridiron Club in D.C. says, you know, you, you singe but never burn. But if you right. never burn, you're really not doing anything but sort of affirming one another, and maybe that's great, but there are certain things you may or may not want to be affirming. Yeah, and I thought that Wolf, she went beyond a little bit to the point where it seemed, first of all, she was going after Sarah Huckabee Sanders, not Trump, although Sanders has properly come under her own criticism for 
in some ways even more than Trump, the way she's lied to the press and, and handled them. But it seemed to create a little more sympathy for Sanders than Myers did for Trump. I don't think anyone had sympathy for Trump other than his ardent supporters because he is such a major target and, and can take the heat more than Sanders, although some would argue Sanders deserved the heat. But that's neither here nor there. But that brings up one more thing, and then we'll let you go. The idea of Trump and the press just in the last couple of days, he did another attack after tweeting that the uh, findings from uh, the latest Mueller information cleared him, which, of course, is not true, and then went on another slam, the, tr- uh, the enemy of the people, the fake news, just to reaffirm his anti-press stance. W- where does that leave things now as we sort of enter into 2019 and the first bits of the uh, 2020 presidential race, Trump and the media? Is it any better? or is it worse than ever? Oh, it's terrible. I think that the president is doing his best and some of his allies joining him to obliterate the notion that the press plays a constructive role in a democracy and that there is anything factual that can be pinned down and tangibly held in your hand and trusted. You know, who are you going to believe, me or your lion eyes, sort of thing. And that that is, in the words of Glenn Kessler, uh, almost like a continual intentional misinformation campaign. He does the Pinocchio scale over at the Washington Post. Yes, oh, it's a very good... Very good uh, fact-checking on their website. Right. One of many now, but nonetheless, he was one of the strongest and uh, most consistent. And he came up with what he called the bottomless Pinocchio, which is one that you come back to. And he reserves that for misstatements, clearly wrong statements that have been repeated at least 20 times. And that is that no matter how many times it's been publicly corrected, Trump and his aides cling to it. And so he goes out there and says it again. Trump is the only person that they have found uh, who has made statements that meet that standard, and he has done so in 14 separate instances so far that they've been able to document. Now, there may be some selection bias. They tend to focus more on the statements of the president than on other politicians, but they look at a lot of other folks as well. The fact that the president, even after the shootings at the uh, Annapolis Capitol newsroom, uh, even after the bombs being sent to the CNN newsroom, even after the killing of a columnist in Turkey insists on calling the the, uh, press not only uh, people that he doesn't respect, but the enemy of the people, I think is a real degradation of one of the foundational structures of our democracy that helps sustain it, even if they're often held in low repute uh, and and low, low respect by the public at large anyway. You know, the idea that you're actively, instead of not just an occasional aside expressing some frustration, but just actively degrading it and ensuring that the people who support you are sort of tribally loyal to you in a way that in in order to demonstrate that you have to evince hostility to the press or dismiss what the press has to say, I think is a problem. And I think it means that the president and his allies and that uh, particularly his supporters, as they tend to embrace that and at least behave as though they believe that, tend to be ill-served by the failure to absorb needed contact and countervailing facts. I think it's only going to get more intense as the uh, investigations done by the special prosecutor and the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, the Southern District of New York uh, appear to be have more serious findings with more serious implications for the president and the people immediately around him. You mentioned in uh, Turkey, you were talking about uh, Jamal Khashoggi, I believe, the reporter for the Washington Post who was killed. And more and more evidence is coming out that the Saudi leadership, the Saudi crown prince, 
was at least aware, if not ordered it, and Trump keeps denying. Yeah, his own officials have said yeah. that it was orchestrated by the crown prince. You know, the secretary of state, himself a former director of the CIA briefly for the president, said there's no direct proof. Right. But they have more than enough to draw that conclusion on at least the terms that the CIA tends to operate. And, you know, the Republican head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee says it's clear. The president, one of the president's top supporters on Capitol Hill, Lindsey Graham, says there's not a smoking gun, there's a smoking handsaw. Right, so he's behind uh, it. And Graham was one of his big defenders with Brett Kavanaugh. Correct. In the Supreme Court fight, so for him to say something shows there's something there. Is it surprising that more people have not turned on Trump within his circle of support, given this you know, this blatant disregard of the murder of a journalist? Or are they in his camp already in in hating the press? I mean, it's one thing to say the press, be anti-press. It's another thing to basically ignore the murder of someone and then support the country and leadership that committed it. It's astounding and staggering. And the president says, you know, well, other people have supported the Saudis in the past and the implication being and they've done terrible things in the past. And by the way, that's totally true. Yeah, that's very true. I've had people say, you know, well, look, you know, nobody got this worked up over all the civilian deaths in Yemen until now. And that's true, too. But this is a very human face Mm -hmm. on a very specific murder of someone who is an American resident and has written for uh, one of the nation's most important news organizations. And it, in some ways, it seems to me, if you can't baseline care about this as a public official, it's very hard to imagine a set of circumstances in which you do care, which is principled as opposed to to get political advantage. This is such a clear-cut one. It cries, the the conscience cries out for attention. Are we ever going to get to the point where people aren't surprised at these things that Trump does? It seems to be the reaction is outrage and outrage and outrage, even though it deserves outrage. This is nothing new with Trump. He essentially will do these offensive, horrible things, and people keep being outraged and surprised by it rather than accept this is the way he is going to be and work to counter that in whatever way or expose it in a different way rather than the constant uh, surprise and outrage? Or is that the way you have to react when such terrible things are said and done? I just wonder if we waste too much time sort of being outraged and surprised. Look, I think that there's all kinds of click. There's all kinds of clickbait outrage. There's yeah, all that's kinds true. of just like uh, reflexive stuff. I try not to get too exercised about it instantaneously. That said, it's worth pointing out when things are deeply undermine what are seen to be overriding and nonpartisan American values. Mm. Uh, I think if you lose your capacity to notice and report on certain kinds of developments, then you might as well get into a different field. I think you pick your spots because there are a lot of them, but the whole Trump notion is that he can't be shamed or he can't be criticized because he's already done something as outrageous or more outrageous in the past, and that somehow inoculates. And so therefore, you can't worry about it anymore. I think there's a difference between saying this is normal and we accept it and saying this isn't a surprise because of the way he is, but overall, we still have to report it and even criticize it in sort of a broader term and look at the extended effect of many things at once rather than Every time something happens, we're surprised, even though he's been done, been doing it for two years and more, actually, before he even got into office. But I wonder how much things will change with the coverage since he's been in two years and he keeps doing the same things. Or, you know, does the press just continue to do what they're doing and point out and cover them the same way in the next two years as in the previous two years? I think we're going to see shifts, you know, assuming he's still around, which I, as, as, as president, which I assume to be the case. I think that it's more likely that, that the 
the press will find new vernacular and new ways of doing things than it has, and that there'll be an acceleration of challenges to the press and how it operates, and that if it simply goes about doing the way it did in 2016 or 2012, or if it simply goes around covering him in the way they do right now, they will be outmatched by mm. somebody who is of no particular fixed place. He's not of strong ideological beliefs, although there's a lot of conservative, very conservative things being enacted in his administration, his name. There's not a lot of fixed principles there, and there's certainly no desire to be held accountable, and that's part of why there's this assault on fact, uh, truth, and reason. Excellent. Well, we thank you, David Falkenflick. You are a media reporter for National Public Radio, and as I mentioned earlier, author of Murdoch's World, The Last of the Old Media Empires, and many other great pieces of work. I appreciate your time. You spent more time with us than we had requested, so I, I hope we didn't pull you out for too long. Um, but we'll keep catching your work at NPR and uh, elsewhere. Well, thanks so much, Joe. I appreciate it. And uh, give a shout-out to listeners to catch up with us, uh, my, my colleague, Magna Chakrabarty, and me on uh, on, on Point on uh, WBUR and stations across the country. Excellent. Thanks a lot, David. Be well. Appreciate it. Take care. And that's all for this week's edition of Joe's Media Corner. I want to thank David Fulkenflick for stopping by and chatting with us about some important media issues. And a reminder, of course, that my book is out, Killing Journalism, How Greed, Laziness, and Donald Trump Are Destroying News and How We Can Save It. Check it out at Amazon.com, and I'll have more information on events as they come up. And, of course, don't forget our sponsor, Jiminy's Dog Treats. Cricket Protein is humane, nutritious, and delicious and fights climate change. Reduce your carbon paw print with Jiminy's at Jiminy's.com, J-I-M-I-N-Y-S dot com. Thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget to tune in again to Joe's Media Corner. We'll be back with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening. Down on the corner, out in the street.